a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact podcast brings to life the ebb and flow inherent on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. Hi, this is Gino Borges, and I want to thank you all for joining us today on the Journey to Impact, a virtual fireside chat series. The Journey to Impact series is here to tell a different story of impact. While we naturally address some of the landmarks of the journey, this series is designed to create a space for uncovering the emotional, mental, and spiritual challenges and successes along the path of impact. It is less about the outcomes or results of our actions, but rather the human components of what it feels like to operate in the impact world, illumining one's inner journey. Today, I'd like to welcome Stuart Williams, who is the founder and chairman of In Place Impact, which is a place-based focused company that seeks to eradicate poverty by giving every community stakeholder a seat at the table. He's also a catalyst for the College of Charleston, becoming one of the nation's leading academic institutions offering impact studies. He sits on the board of governors as an impact expert in residence and an impact advocate for the Center of Entrepreneurship at the College of Charleston. In the early 1990s, <clears throat> excuse me, Stewart co-founded president, uh, co-founded and was president and CEO of the Strategic Research Institute, which he built into one of the world's leading business-to-business conference companies. And prior to that, he worked in traditional finance in London. And um, a small sort of sideward journey quirk, I, Stuart also spent a year in New Orleans as a volunteer to support victims of Hurricane Katrina. Has an upcoming book called The Status Quo, The Greatest Pyramid Scheme in History that's coming out. And so um, I want to thank our mutual friend, Jed Emerson, for introducing us um, and making this moment possible. So welcome, Stuart. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Take us back on how you got to this point in terms of starting, you know, this journey to create institutions like the Strategic Research Institute, which eventually led to in-place impact and your college experience. I'd like to just go back to that origin and that aha moment that you had wherever it was, whenever it was, when you said, like, maybe life might be more multidimensional than what I'm currently experiencing or seeing. Sure, um, I need to go back to the 80s. <laughs> That's how old I am, but uh, I need to go back that far. Um, my lifelong friend and I um, were huge environmental conservationists and, and through uh, some family associations of his, we, we had a wonderful benefactor who um, was funding some fairly large environmental conservation projects for us in Europe in the 80s. And and I'll confess that when I was in my mid-20s, I really didn't care much about people. I cared about the planet. I I was under this illusion that if there was no planet, there'd be no people. So why don't we just save the planet and everyone can figure it out for themselves? (laughs) Um, 
We were then brought down to earth with a bump by our biggest benefactor who who mandated that we find a way to drive a greater impact for people, but through our environmental conservation efforts. Um, and to say that we were clueless when we were first given that mandate, I think would be an understatement. Um, so we decided to do the thing that we thought we did best, which was to do some research to figure out, you know, how, how we could actually do this. Um, what we ended up doing was, uh, at least it, through our lens, seeing the world, seeing the sort of sustainability of the world in four different pods, there were four legs of the stool. So one was environmental conservation within which we were deeply embedded. The second was sustainability as it was back then, which really wasn't much more than recycling, to be honest with you. Um, the third was social change architecture, which, of course, is very prevalent today. And the fourth one was something that was very much in its infancy, this thing that I certainly didn't know about when I first uh, discovered it called socially responsible investing. Um, and we had this idea that if we were to embed all four of those legs of the stool into uh, an innovation, that possibly could have the outcome where we would be able to drive impact for not only the planet, but also people. And so that's what we did. Uh, we deliberately embedded socially responsible investing, sustainability and social change architecture into environmental conservation projects. And, you know, whether by luck or divine intervention or some skill, it actually worked. Um, and that gave us a number of things to do. The first one was then to actually challenge other people who uh, had the same purpose as us, but were more embedded, let's say, in social change architecture, or they were more embedded in socially responsible investing. We could challenge them to also embed the other three legs of the stool into, in, into their innovations. And that worked as well. And then, of course, what we were able to do was measure which of those four legs actually had the biggest impact. And um, people on this call may not be surprised to learn that it was the presence of appropriate capital that actually had the most impact. And so by 1990-91, I was really intrigued by um, socially responsible investing and the impact that it could potentially have on the world. And so uh, my dear friend, who today has founded and runs the European Nature Trust, which is a fantastic organization that, that now works globally, um, stayed completely wedded to environmental conservation. And I started this journey down this rabbit hole, you know, called socially responsible investing. Um, and by 1993, uh, had met this wonderful woman by the name of Susan Davis, who now lives in Vilcabamba, Ecuador, of all places. But um, she and I uh, started building a platform called Making a Profit While Making a Difference. And I suppose that was the sort of seminal moment that made me realize that, albeit capitalism had done a lot of good up until that time, and it really had, and it still does, um, it had to be changed. It, it was the time was coming for for a new paradigm, a new form of more inclusive capitalism. Um, 
and but I had a real job, as I mentioned to you earlier. I was actually running my own firm that I'd started by this stage in New York City, and so and so for many years this had to be a hobby, and albeit a very passionate hobby. Um, but that was the genesis. The but I mean, take us. My understanding is you're trained in traditional finance, and so where did traditional finance and your love for nature sort of bump into each other? Um, a lot of people, um, so I mean, especially from the states, you have to work on a, on a connection to nature. Unfortunately, um, I mean, there's this strange sort of disconnect, and you're trained in traditional finance, but where did the love and and the the love for nature did it, and then you went into finance. I'm just trying to understand sort of how one okay. may have informed the other. I don't think they did. Okay. <laughs> I, I think that they were they were pretty separate. I mean, one was one was to make a living, and the other was a true passion. And I think that passion came from the fact that I've always been a great believer in the feminine. Um, and to me, that's Mother Nature. And I've always had this this wonderful connection uh, with the feminine for as long as I can remember, actually. Um, and I recall in Wales when I was quite young, I was there on a summer holiday and, and people were cutting down all these trees. And, and um, I don't know why, but I wasn't old enough probably to understand, but something didn't sit well with me. And I remember telling my parents you know, why are they cutting down all these trees? And they were cutting them down to make the props for the mine shafts. Mm. And um, it wasn't too long after that there was a massive uh, storm and there was a big mudslide that killed a lot of people. And it, it was those types of things that would make me sit back and think, okay, well, that's probably not the right thing to do. Uh, again, too young to truly understand why, but it just, it, those types of things just kept sitting with me and sitting with me and the more, things that I saw, um, the more I became uh, really entrenched in environmental conservation. And then, you know, having to make a living and get a job, or that, that was just a career path that sort of I chose or fell into my lap, if you want. So I don't think the two were connected at all. What, what was interesting was that I was able to see that money certainly at that stage had zero conscience. Um, uh, you know, I've never seen a bill, a dollar bill or an English pound make a good or bad decision for itself. So when people talk about good capital and bad capital, what they're really talking about is good people or bad people because the money itself doesn't make a decision, right? It's an inanimate object. It's the people behind it making the decisions that you could question are good and bad. And, and look, I don't, I don't think that my parents' generation um, or even people just a little bit older than I woke up every morning and when they were you know, getting ready to go to work in the bathroom mirror, said to themselves, okay, now how can I go and screw the planet or humanity today? I actually don't think back then that was the case. I think there was some plausible denial in the 70s and 80s. But I think as we've progressed through the 90s and certainly into this decade, that all plausible denial is off the table. Where do you think our awareness around the integration between money and environment and people is at at this point in time from from the 
from the deniability uh, generations to seemingly some amount of awareness that's leading to more of an integrative, systemic way of thinking about money as a vehicle catalyzing certain particular impacts and externalities and so forth. Where, where do you see it as a guy who's in the space, travels and talks to people and sees the world in a much more of a three-dimensional um, way than most, in particular in the world of finance, where are we at right now and where do we need to go? Well, I think it's a I, I think it's a bigger problem, uh, Gino, than that. I, I think we're at a situation here where we're being separated as as a species. Humanity is being separated, whether it's over race, religion, politics, income, sexuality, gender. Um, if you listen to the rhetoric that comes from Capitol Hill or, or comes from the media, we're just being separated, and that and that is a deliberate divide and conquer mentality. And what's interesting to me when we did a, a study at, at C of C is that if you take um, a standard deviation of 20, so let's say people in, in Britain who are in the Conservative Party or, or in America in the GOP, let's say that the, the extreme is, is plus 10 on that scale. And then the extreme for the Social Democrats or the Democratic Party or the Labour Party in the UK is minus 10, right? and zero being completely neutral, impartial, independent. 70% of the people are within six standard deviation points of each other, i.e. three right or three left. Now, you'd never know that if you listen to the rhetoric coming from Capitol Hill or the media. And so I, I think the problem is much bigger than the question that you opposed to me. But I, but I think the question you posed to me is a part, is symptomatic of what's going on in that bigger issue. And if we could just find a way for that, those 70% of people to realize that they're not that far apart, that nobody with any sense is saying, oh, you know, you have to stop, stop being Catholic or you have to stop being Mormon or Jewish or you, you have to vote Democrat. People can stay in their own lanes still embrace, you know, th their own personal uh, spirituality, religion, gender, sexuality, but they're still pretty close. And there are things that there are things that we can find where there is commonality, where there is a common thread that so that we can reconnect people again. Um, and once we do that, I think we'll start solving the problem that you mentioned. Sort of leads me into like, what's the role of place in being part of that solution and being part of that connection, commonality? Um, essentially, what I hear you saying is, is that this middle, that this middle has similar intentions, very close intentions, has an enormous amount of leverage on the extreme, and yet the middle is has been deleveraged by the extreme in terms mm -hmm. of really exerting itself forward. Mm -hmm. So I. Curious about like what what role does place and your efforts to impact place based investing might play a role in that? Well, you know, a dear dear friend of mine uses this analogy about if you're on an aircraft and there's a problem, you put your oxygen mask on first before you put your child's on, right? Because if you don't get yours on, your child may never get theirs on, and. <laughs> And, and, and she's absolutely right with that analogy. 
Because what tends to happen here is you've got a set of people that are saying, oh, no, no, forget about yourself. You have to think about everybody else. Well, look, there's a part of that that's true. But there's another part of that if you don't actually make your own place sustainable, and by sustainable, I mean economically, socially, and environmentally sustainable, what hope have you got? Of, of empowering other people in other parts of the world or other parts of your community to do the same thing. Now, I live in Charleston, South Carolina. I live just outside Charleston, South Carolina. And Charleston, South Carolina, because of Condé Nast magazine, it's now rated the number one city in America. We get 8 million visitors a year. And on the surface, everything looks hunky-dory, right? Uh, we tend to forget that there's a really abhorrent past with slavery, and, uh, and, 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 and some of the, um, the hurt of that still remains in our community. And we have numerous community segments that are very, very poor. In fact, um, some of the barrier islands here have maybe some of the most expensive zip codes in the country. And literally a mile away, people don't have fresh water, right? So when you talk about being in place, I believe that we have to actually be in place to empower people to fix the problems that they're facing. And there's two issues I see to that when I travel around the world. The first one is that many people believe that you can fix other people's problems for them. Well, I'm here to tell you that you can't. And secondarily, they believe that they can fix them from afar. Well, I'm here to tell you you can't do that either. Um, the best way is to help is to empower people to fix the problems themselves. Because if you if you take the time to go into these communities and take a deep dive, what you'll understand is that the people that live there and face the problems on a day to day basis actually do have the solutions. We've just never bothered to trust them, believe in them, um, give them any credibility to think that they could actually build an impact focused company to solve a social, economic, or environmental problem, but they can. Now, you can't do that from afar. You have to be in place. And so building new forms of circular economies like impact economics that uses, that uses inclusive capitalism to give every single stakeholder who's in that place a seat at the table where innovations are designed for each of those stakeholder segments that provide quote unquote wins for each stakeholder segment. But it's imperative that if one wins, they all win. That to me is, uh, is truly what in place or place based investing or place based assets means. What's an example in your own neighborhood or in the city of Charleston or within that region that would exemplify the voices and the expressions of all stakeholders being taken into account? Well, I think it, I think it's the we took 10 years to build and design a new form of capitalism called impact economics. And for the last five years, we've uh, embedded it in the community of Charleston uh, and it's worked. And it's worked for every stakeholder. Um, people can go to our website and take a look at it. Anyone is welcome to come to Charleston and see how this works, where we have brought together the stakeholders with, with educational institutions, with students, with community residents, with 
impact entrepreneurs, with impact investors, with corporations, with not-for-profits, and, and with the local government, and then with marginalized community segments. And, and, we've, and we've put that together, and it can be replicated anywhere in the world. Um, and that, I would say, in my opinion, it is probably the best exemplar that I could give you of using this, this systems approach in place to to make your community uh, or, or to help your community grow into something that's economically, socially, and environmentally sustainable for all of its residents instead of just some of them. Can you paint a picture, Stuart, of a before and after during these 10 years uh, to give us a sense of how all the stakeholders have been allowed to surface where they weren't able to surface? Like, just sort of color it in for us a little bit. I th okay, so I think, you know, if we go 10 years ago and we look at, well, well let's, let's go back even further and then we'll get to 10 years. I think it's worthwhile realizing that if you take the world as a whole, over the last 60 years, millions of people, and I mean millions, of bright people with big hearts, um, well-meaning, have been given through government grants, through philanthropy, through charity, etc., billions and billions and billions of dollars to fix poverty. And it might be worse. So I think, I think what one has to do is take a deep dive and to say, well, why? Because that wasn't the intent of anyone that started to go on this journey to fix it, right? And so when, when we did a two-year study into this, what we discovered was the following. Most innovations or most initiatives focus on fixing an effect instead of a cause. So, for example, and you asked me about Charleston, gentrification is an effect. Lack of access to education and healthcare is an effect. Lack of access to suitable transportation to get jobs is an effect. Food deserts are an effect. High unemployment is an effect, and I, I can go on and on. And it's, it's rather akin to the sort of medical analogy of here you have a patient dying of a disease, but we're only going to treat the symptoms. If you, don't, if you don't actually treat the disease, eventually that patient will die. So, that, so that's, that's number one. Number two, most initiatives that we find, that we found, um, and this is certainly not deliberate, and I think it falls under the law of unintended consequence, were actually designed to be win-lose, meaning somebody in the community is going to lose if another segment is going to win. And today, at least in my mind, win-lose is actually lose-lose. And so you have to sort of re-look at that and say, how do you design things that are win-win? Um, Another before would be the choke points that are preventing top-down capital from um, finding and funding bottom-up innovation. Now, that includes the government, and unfortunately, and I'm not very popular when I say this, it includes a lot of not-for-profits. So in two of the studies we did, we found that on average, only 9% of the capital re released from the top finds its way to the bottom. That's nine cents out of every dollar. That's inefficient. But what does it lead to, which is more important? 
it, it leads to narratives being socialized around the top and the bottom that are not true. So because there is currently, or because there was no direct line of sight between the top and the bottom, they can't see each other, these narratives became pervasive. So let's give you an example. A narrative that would, would socialize at the bottom is that the top don't care, they've got all this money, and they, they don't give any of it you know, to us. Well, I certainly don't know a family of wealth or a very large corporation that does not donate copious amounts of time and money, energy, passion to something. Now, now, based upon our, our, our personal virtues and values, we can debate what that something is. And so that narrative it, that's socializing around the bottom is not true. Let's talk about a narrative that socializes around the top, that the people at the bottom are lazy, they don't want to they, they, they work, on and on and on, right? In my experience, not true. And so... Until you can actually give direct line of sight, those narratives continue um, and they're not true. So one of the things you have to do is unlock those choke points that prevent the top down capital from finding funding and scaling these bottom up innovations and and take away the opaqueness between the top and the bottom. So that so unlocking the choke points is another one. Um, Another what's point that well, but before like I mean, what's an example mm -hmm. so people can actually tangibilize these choke points? Like, what are some examples of choke points that you saw to clear up the line of sight for people in your own community? So we saw certain not-for-profits. We saw we saw donations from the top go through the different economic strata until you get to the bottom. So. Okay, what are they? When we look at the world in terms of economic demographics, we look at 0.1%, not 1%, 0.1 at the very top. The next level down is 9.9%. Those are the people that make a fantastic living out of the people that made a fantastic fortune. And then you've got 50% below that, which is you know a big chunk of society who are on a hamster's wheel, charging around every day, doing the best that they can to... In, let's talk about America, afford college, afford healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. Now, admittedly, some people fly off the hamster's wheel and go towards the top. And unfortunately, some fly off to go towards the bottom. And then, of course, you've got that bottom 40% of what we call marginalized or disenfranchised people. Well, when the capital is released from the top, by the time it goes through those, those different economic strata, there's not much of it left. And we have actually seen that happen. We've actually seen donations being made to not-for-profits. We've seen government grants being given out where literally nine cents of every dollar finds its way. Now, I'm not going to pick on specific not-for-profits. That would be unfair. But I'll give you a generality, right? There are certain issues in this country that you'd have to live under a rock if you didn't know they were a problem, Okay. So when $100 is released or donated to a not-for-profit purposed on, on fixing, that, that's a really important word here, fixing that problem, this is what happens. $40, 40 or 40% goes to pay admin costs, which is totally fair and totally reasonable. People are working. They need to get paid. 
they've got to pay utilities, et cetera, right? 51% goes to, on awareness. Well, everyone already knows it's a problem. So you have to say to yourself, why is that 51% being spent on awareness? And if you take a deep dive into that, this is what you find. So let's take, let's take problem X and let's assume there are 10 not-for-profits in your community all focused on that one problem. And let's assume in your community there's $100,000 every year from different places that gets donated to fix problem X. And let's just assume for a minute, and I know this sounds like a perfect world, that all 10 of those not-for-profits split that 100000 equally and they've all got $10,000 each. Okay. That's not enough money, right? So what do they have to do? They have to spend 80% of their time charging around to create more awareness, not on the problem, but on raising more capital so they can fund their not-for-profit, not just not-for-profits or government initiative. Well, then what happened? That's inefficient, right? So then someone else comes along and says, wait a minute, this is really inefficient. These 10 not-for-profits are really not doing a great job impacting the actual problem. I know how to do it. I'll start my own. Now you have 11 splitting $100,000, and, and, and so it goes on. Right? That, that's a choke point. Another choke point uh, is a total lack of collaboration. I mean, how many people do you know that pull their hair out because you can't get people to collaborate even though they're all focused on the same problem? So that's a choke point. And what's then the, the final... Well, Stuart, what's the reason behind the lack of collaboration? Oh, I think a lot of it is ego, to be honest with you. I, I think a lot of it is, well, wait a minute, you know, this is mine. And um, I, I don't want to possibly have any potential of the donations that I'm getting going somewhere else or the grants that I'm getting going somewhere else. Um, and then we looked at what I've mentioned to you before. There are levels of intellectual arrogance around the world where people will talk about wonderful things but actually never put their feet in the ground and do anything. And then you have the, well, I can fix their problem. Well, we don't think you can. And I can fix it from 3,000 miles away. We don't think you can. So pre-10 years, when we went, and by the way, we went into marginalized communities around the world and held focus groups, speaking to 80-somethings in one room from, the, from a community, 20-somethings in another room from the same community, asked them exactly the same questions relating to the choke points that, that were preventing progress. The only difference was that the octogenarian group were asked a second set of uh, questions, which was now think back 50 or 60 years to when you were 20 and what were the problems then? And when everyone finished, we put them in the same room and we showed the results. And in that room, we then had invited the municipal leaders, religious leaders, community leaders, government leaders, philanthropists, etc. And the sad part is, was the answers were almost the same. So today's 20-somethings, we're seeing the same as today's 80-somethings. That was sad enough. But what, what was really profoundly sad was that the answers from 60 years ago were the same answers as today. The only conclusion you can draw from that is nothing's changed, or you can make an argument that it's getting worse. 
And so that led us down this uh, path of trying to identify what those problems really were. And in every instance, we found the root cause of the problem was lack of economic vibrancy. And so we re- economic, economic vibrancy. So we realized if you could fix economic vibrancy, you could then start to eradicate a lot of the causes. Now, this does not mean that you're not going to feed a hungry child if that child is hungry. Of course, you're going to do that. But if you don't fix the cause, you'll be feeding that child every day for the rest of his or her life. What does economic vibrancy look like, though? Well, it means increasing the velocity of capital in marginalized communities, where in lots of places it's zero, and in other places it's very, very, very slow. Um, And you want to do that by, by empowering the people that live there to do it themselves, to give them the knowledge and information and tools and contacts and context, et cetera, and support and belief so they can put pride back in themselves and they can step forward and build their own small businesses or get hired. So what's a personal story? Uh, leave last name out, but uh, sort of give us just grounded for me in a biography of somebody in a community that because of this impact economics framework for, the, for Charleston, uh, Joanne or Joan or Lisa, whoever it was, previously was was in this situation and now as a result of access to capital connections to an incubator now has this. So Sharon, uh, 60 year old, single Gullah Geechee, African-American lady, uh, wanted to affect change in her community, wanted to protect the arts and ceremonies and traditions of the Gullah Geechee community came to the free community impact entrepreneurship class with an idea. And that idea was to put together a collaborative of Geechee artists that she could fund with very small amounts of money, akin to sort of micro loans in Indonesia, um, to make their art. She would deal with all the logistics and distribution. She would build the centralized website where everything could be put on and people could buy, buy them. Um, and that lady got funded by Bloomberg Philanthropies. So, and that's just one. And I can give you many, many instances um, because all we did was put belief in that individual and give her what she needed to empower herself. Now, the other big sort of aha moment that came from our research was that poverty is actually an economic model. And we've been merrily fighting poverty with charity for the last 60 years. Well, I hate to say it, but you may as well take a knife to a gunfight. You can't win that battle, right? Evidenced by the fact that really not much has changed. But I mean, what and does it mean for you? See, I mean, for people that don't understand and it, uh, explain what poverty as an economic model actually means and, and the implications of that. Sure. Well, uh, p- poverty is driven by economics or the lack thereof, right? You have, you have flows of capital go on, going on around the world. And virtually every community you can think of has its own velocity of capital. So, for example, Beverly Hills 
parts of New York, Greenwich, Connecticut, I'm just talking about America here, uh, parts of London, England. There, there are communities that have very, very high velocity of capital. And if you go into those communities, lo and behold, you don't find food deserts. You don't find high unemployment or high crime rates. Um, you don't find gentrification, right? Fact of life. When you go into communities where the money has been sucked out historically um, and there's nothing left, you have a very, very low velocity of capital, right? And that's when you have all those those effects of poverty. And the point is that you, in our opinion, you have to fix poverty with economics. You cannot fix it. Well, we certainly haven't been able to fix it with charity and philanthropy for the last 60 years. So how do you redesign the economic model? Because capitalism is not all bad. You know, there, there's this, in the military, there's this you know, you have two choices, right? You can either be the in the camp of ready, aim, fire, or you're ready, fire, aim. And the latter generally results in a lot of collateral damage, right? So ready, fire, aim is um, capitalism is terrible. We have to stop it tomorrow. Or ready, fire, aim is the hydrocarbon industry is abhorrent. We have to switch off the spigot tomorrow. Okay, well, what's the collateral damage of those two things, right? If you switched off capitalism tomorrow, I mean, it would be a total mess. And if you shut down every hydrocarbon company tomorrow, as much as I would love to, what happens to the people who are totally reliant on their income and their livelihood from those companies. Now, the ready, aim, fire approach is you put in, you put together a long-term solution over a decade or two decades, whereas you wind one down, you replace it with something that, that's actually more inclusive. And so the key here for us, at least from the research we've done, is to say in place, how do you actually morph capitalism to keep the good parts and then slowly but surely eradicate the bad parts. And we think we've, we think we've done that. So, yeah. Yeah. Is there, uh, is this sort of the origin, obviously, uh, Stuart, you're one person, but you have actually extended your value belief insights into modules of education is this the is this the reason why you have leaned forward in your community and actually started an education model to when you talk about acceleration velocity of capital i also feel like your work is also uh, trying to increase the velocity of this belief system spreading from a singularity model of economics to a multi-dimensional, multi-stakeholder uh, model of economics. So take us into this idea of impact economics as an education model, specifically what's happening at the Char uh, College of Charleston. Mm -hmm. So, so far. Oh, I just lost you, Stuart. Your voice is out. Can't hear you. 
It's something you just did with your mic. You hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Thank you. Okay. Um, five years ago, I showed up at the College of Charleston. I didn't know anyone. Um, and in, in, our, in our new economic model, educational institutions and students are stakeholders, right? Like, like other community stakeholders. And so when we took a look at education and a, and a deep look at education, we realized that this, this whole thesis of making a profit while making a difference was not really being taught. Uh, there may have been, uh, uh, you know, within specific classes, it may have been mentioned, but there was nothing truly that was dedicated to this. And our research had told us, at least, that over the next 50 years, the greatest accumulation of wealth on this planet is likely to be amassed by individuals who innovate solutions for the social, economic, and environmental problems we face. Moreover, the highest and most sustainable corporate returns would be delivered by leaders who really embrace what today people call the leadership and management strategy of profit and purpose. And I think it's no secret probably to everyone on this call what the, the business roundtable came out with uh, two weeks ago, right? So, okay, so if that's the case, why aren't we teaching young people? Why aren't we teaching students that? And so we designed... Um, uh, a center for impact studies that would uh, allow students to learn impact entrepreneurship, impact investing, purpose and profit management, integrated reporting, cause marketing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I showed up at the College of Charleston and said, look, you know, I am happy to do this work uh, pro bono uh, for you. And so the first class that we developed was the Impact X, it's called class. And it's a six credit semester class. So it's a heavy lift for the students. Um, students have to apply to get into the class. We get hundreds of applications each semester for this uh, class. Um, once they're accepted and before they attend, they have to learn the 17 UN SDGs. And when they actually get to the class, they then self-select around a shared passion and purpose into teams of three students. Um, but there has to be a liberal arts major, business major, and computer science major on each team. So it's interdisciplinary. Nice. And then they spend the entire semester building out these for-profit innovations, purpose to help Greater Charleston attain uh, the SDGs that, that, that they are passionate about. Um, each team gets a tech mentor from the community, gets a business mentor from the community, um, and they, they learn public speaking. They learn how to pivot. They have to pitch. They're learning problem solving. It's totally consequential learning, which is what we call it. Um, and at the end of the semester, there is a public pitch day where the top three teams split $10,000 of real money uh, to build out their innovations. Um, and then the city donates a separate prize um, for the team that the city feels has focused on the best innovation for the city's problems. And the city donates another $5,000. Um, and it's very quickly become the number one class at the school. Uh, the innovations that come out of this class, uh, a lot of them will make you cry, uh, but they'll also blow your mind. I think. When you give like, I mean, what's uh, some examples of the innovations? So, uh, okay, so let's, 
I'll give you a couple of, I'll give you one fun one and one sort of more poignant one. Sure. So the, the fun one would be um, uh, two of the three uh, participants in one team were very passionate about the fact that uh, many, many schools were having to drop the arts, right? So they wanted to figure out, well, you know, how can we help fund the arts in, in schools? And they came up with an innovation called bid, as in you're bidding at an auction, bid the band. And so that is to be launched. I think it's going to be launched at the back end of this year, but it's an app. And as consumers, we can download the app for free. Um, and, and if you're a musician, you can download the app for free. Now, what the musicians do is they upload um, who they are, what their music genre is, where they're playing in Charleston, what time, etc. So if, if you're living here or visiting, you can go on this app and you can say, I'd like to listen to this genre of music. I'd like it to be free, uh, etc. And you can see and select where you want to go. Um, as a consumer, you just check, you know, you check the app about where you want to go because the artists have, have uploaded and published where they'll be playing. And they've also published, by the way, their total song list. So at least in my day, if you went to a piano bar, for example, you had to walk up to the piano bar and put money in the jar, right? Okay. Yeah. So this, what this app does is you walk in to the show you've selected and you start to bid on the songs you want the artists to play. Now, everyone else in there can bid also. And, they, you know, the artist has their iPad up there, right? And the winning songs get played. And if your bid wins, that money is extracted from your Venmo account, right? Yeah. Now, 80% of it goes to the artist, but 20% of it goes to a charity for the arts. Now, that's fine on a small scale, but here's how it's going to work on a much bigger scale. And, and I won't tell you the music company we're in touch with, but some very, very famous artists who have literally hundreds of millions of followers on social media are going to use it in two ways. The first way is that you go to a concert put on by X, you're in the concert, they, yeah. walk, off, they walk off for an encore, right? And with while they're off stage, you start bidding which song you want them to play or which two songs and in which order, and it's on a big screen, right? Uh -huh. And if, if, if you win, the money's taken out of your account. Now, we're talking here hundreds of thousands of dollars, right, because you've got 30,000, 40,000 people at a concert, and 100% of that money goes to charity to fund the arts. The second way that pr professional artists are using it is if they plan a tour, a world tour, they will take some of those venues. And when you buy your ticket, you log on the app and you now bid on which songs you want them to play at the concert and in which order. So the fans are actually putting together the, the, the concert. So that's bid the band, right? And that's to fund the arts. A, a more poignant one is we had a suicide at, at the College of Charleston a number of years ago and and three of the people in this one particular team knew the person, unfortunately. And they wanted to do something to help with teen depression. And so they built an algorithm that, that, that uh, people can drop into social media accounts and just, just through normal interaction, it will notify somebody with 80% accuracy that, that that person has got signs of depression, et cetera, et cetera. So, 
I mean, there, there's there's innovations for water. There's an innovation for SDG 17 to connect everyone in the SDGs across the world that the UN is very now interested in. So and I can go on and on. But so so that's what we did at the school. We also at the school because because Charleston does have an abhorrent past in certain things. And there are there are segments of the community in Charleston that saw the college more more as an enemy than actually as an asset. And so when we decided to take that student class and teach it completely for free in the evenings, and by the way, that's a $12,000 value because six credits at CFC is about $12,000. So it's a $12,000 value. We teach it three times a year in a 12-week cohort, an hour and a half every Wednesday night for any community resident of Greater Charleston. We decided to hold it at the school and at the, in the same room, the students take their class. And what that did was that allowed people from the community who, who up until now really did not see this college as an asset to completely change their mind. These are people that would have never walked through the doors of this sort of vaulted education institution. And now they're embedded um, as part of the college and the college is way more embedded in their community than they ever were before. So, educating as many people as you can, whether it be students, whether it be community residents, and it doesn't matter about their background one iota, (coughs) on impact studies, on the fact that they can literally participate in, but just as importantly for them, personally benefit from this drive for for a sustainable community um, is really important. Let me ask you, this is all um, this modern day project that you're working on, and it's just such a phenomenal um, ongoing social educational experiment is all against the backdrop of sort of a deep, dark, painful sort of historical legacy. I'm just wondering where where those two things sort of collide um, or dance, confront each other or not. Um, I'm just wondering how much of the history is actually pulled forward um, because, you know, a lot of our history resides in, in, our, in the cells of our bodies. And so there's only, you know, to some extent until that trust of the body can really open up and, and those notions of separation really come forward. I mean, we can work on our tech applications, but what do you feel at like a vibrational level that's happening in Charleston or not because of uh, disclosure around this historical legacy or a lack thereof? And where, where might be the intersection to actually uh, create more velocity? Because maybe there's an enormous amount of weight based on the historical legacy of that region that actually keeps, while the intention's there, still keeps a lot of these good intentions actually slowly moving along as opposed to like really everybody is a part of this as opposed to that one faction that's always having to be pulled forward because just simply the weight of your history. That's a really, that's a really poignant question. Um, Charleston has had a very difficult past. And, and, and it is a truism that some of that continues today. Now, people talk about 
a liberal arts education not having any value anymore. I think, you know, you hear that in many communities. You hear it from many parents. You know, why am I spending $60,000 for my child to go and learn, you know, the history of art or something? Well, it's very, very difficult to try and help solve a social problem if you do not have the context from whence it came and why it's still here. And you're not really going to learn that in computer science. And you're not really going to learn that in business. You're going to learn that in liberal arts. And that's one of the reasons that our class is interdisciplinary. And so we have found that if you take the time to fully understand contextually why we still have that problem in, in that community at this time, it actually allows a conversation to take place, which actually leads to healing. And what we have found in Charleston, um, certainly over the last five or six years, and um, uh, I work with this uh, lovely lady uh, who, who's just brilliant. Uh, her name is Cynthia. And, you know, she she really does understand the vibrancy and the frequency and see it and how it's been rising for all aspects of, of the community in Charleston. Um, and it's because people are now, um, I'm not going to say ready, but they're open to having a, a dialogue of honesty about this. Now, sometimes those dialogues are difficult because you can talk about things like reparations, right? Which, if you're a realist, they're not coming in, in, in any great way or form, right? Mm -hmm. but, but to us, that, that's like, you know, when some politicians will go into the coal states, right? And they'll say, okay, great, you know, coal's coming back. It's not coming back, right? And we use that analogy, actually, when we, when, we, when we have these gatherings. And the analogy we use is, look, you know, we're in a change of age here, right? The, the Stone Age didn't end. We've all said this because it ran out of stones. And the Iron Age didn't end because it ran out of iron. And the Bronze Age didn't end because it ran out of bronze, etc. And the hydrocarbon age won't end because we run out of hydrocarbons. In every instance, human innovation and technology just found a better way. And that's what's happening. Even if we didn't have climate change today, the hydrocarbon age is over, right? And, and we, can, we, we can give that as a truism. And then we can say, look, here you, you, you've got people, you've got politicians that people respect and revere walking into these states saying, don't worry, we'll bring all the coal job back. Well, then it's not going to happen. Okay? Now, you take that analogy and, and you put it now in a place-based conversation. And people walk in and say, well, you know, we're expecting, you know, $100 million in reparations. Well, it's not going to happen. And, and so you know, what are we going to do about it? Um, and what we try and do when we have these conversations, and I had, a, I, I'll just go a little bit off tangent. I have a dear, dear friend. Her name is Joy Oti, and she, and she is one of this, uh, the leaders of our indigenous peoples in America. And she and I, she came to me, and we're having a long conversation about the Black Hills. And I don't know if you know the history of this, but Obviously, you know, when America decided to go rape, pillage and steal all the land from the Native Americans, by the way, the Brits were even worse around the world. So I'm not pointing fingers at America, believe me, um, although it did happen um, in the 70s. I can't remember which president it was, but he said, OK, look, you know, uh, we'll buy that. We'll give you money for the Black Hills. We'll give you like, you know, 
$500 million or something. And the Native Americans said, I don't want, we don't want that. We actually want our land back. And so that money was put in a trust. It was put in an escrow. It's still there today. And when President Obama came to office, I think that number had grown to like $4 billion or something. You can, you can Google it and, and take a look. And Obama said, well, do you want the $4 billion? And they said, no, you know, we want our land back, right? So what he said was, okay, here, here, here's the deal. You can have your land back if the 12 tribes, I think it was 12, that, 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 were, that have, a, have a claim to ownership of the Black Hills, you go away and then you come back in a united front and tell us who's going to get what and what you're going to do with the land. Well, it still hasn't happened. And, and I was speaking to Joyty, and, you know, in the end I had to say to her, I said, well, you know, what have you been doing about this? And she said, well, we've been sitting in ceremony praying. And I said, flippantly, which I shouldn't have, how's that working for you? And, you know, she quite rightly took offense to that comment. I shouldn't have made that comment. And she sort of walked off and said, I'll see you tomorrow morning. And I thought, Lord, this is not going to be good. So I went to see her the next morning, you know, fully expected to be dressed down for that comment I made. And she said, I thought about this and you're absolutely right. You know, we're going to continue to do what we're doing, but we're going to add to it something based more in reality. And when you go in place where there's a lot of hurt, where there's a lot of abhorrent history, it's okay to run two initiatives in parallel. Um, but, you, but you have to be open-minded and, and you have to understand the lens that those people look at life through, which is probably completely different to the lens that you look at life through. And this is why systems approaches are so vitally important if we're going to heal this separation that we spoke about earlier on the call, this rift between, between members of humanity and quite frankly, also humanity and the environment. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Stuart. You, you, you ended that right at the top of the hour. Okay. I, <laughs> I, um, I could speak to you for hours and I really want to um, thank you for for the work you've been doing, you're an early pioneer in the space in terms of connecting dots and entering the communities that you live in to have these difficult yet inspiring and revitalizing conversation. Also, one of the other things that came out um, for me was just this intergenerational aspiration that you have, very passionate about collecting and bringing and gathering uh, different classes and ages together and showing that while seemingly it feels different when you identify merely as a group, but when you come together, you see the commonality, which, mm -hmm. which encapsulates, which touches on that very thing, the original cause of much of the issues that we're potentially facing or the lack of empowerment that we're seeing in communities as a result of the, the, the factionalization, the balkanization that's occurring within our communities and to some extent, the word impact may be simply trying to unionize, to create uh, writing see, metaphorically. This is our opportunity to write love letters to each other and not hate letters sort of anymore. And these are all, again, figuratively speaking, the potential to write love letters again um, and where we can actually fall in love. And I mean, that's not even... Um, most people might take that as a sort of a hallmark saying or as a romantically saying, but I really do think that the the era of 
uh, of Eros is a potential approach. And if we see identification um, across these secular boundaries, as um, it's much easier to live in, in, in a collaborative manner. It's very interesting that this, if we looked at life the way we're currently being fractionalized and divided and parceling out ourselves from the source, it's taken an enormous amount of energy just to sustain ourselves, as opposed to when we work collaboratively across projects and provide access. The irony is it takes a lot less inputs because mm -hmm. we're actually able to leverage all the nodes mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to having to input every node. We're actually inputting relations and the mm -hmm. relations actually support the nodes. And so it's a really nice emphasis on the importance of supporting the in-betweenness of each other, not just the individual themselves, mm -hmm. but really supporting conditions and environments that support the in-betweenness and trusting that that support of the in-betweenness and the relations will support the resiliency. And in particular, I think what you really bring to the table is to understand resiliency occurs in place because in place you honor the alchemy of the true authentic needs of the members of that particular community as mm -hmm. opposed to a top-down from afar, which mm -hmm. I mean tends to be sort of the dominant WASPy model. Mm -hmm. um, and what we know from anthropologists who do great work, the anthropologists tend to, the great ones go in with a clean slate and really try to be much more inductive as opposed to deductive and coming in with their paradigms and shooting it and reducing the community phenomena down to their pre-diagnosed pre categories, allowing the life forms and life force to actually stay active and holding it fragilely and trying to trying to move it within the community. So thank you so much, Stuart. Um, very much a debt of gratitude. I know that you've been in this a lot longer than me, and that's why I felt fortunate when Jed Emerson introduced us to have you come along. Well, thank you. I appreciate being here. Um, there's an awful lot of work to be done. And um, I think I'd be remiss in saying that for me, um, the, the rise of the feminine to balance the masculine leadership is, is a real imperative here. Um, I think we've lost our way. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to point fingers at anyone and, and portion blame. We just lost our way. And I think that uh, one of the seminal moments for us uh, in order to get, to get that back will be if we can rise the feminine to balance leadership of the masculine um, in all aspects of our life. I think that will help heal. I think that will help reconnect us. And um, you talked about a clean slate. That's what we did. We went back and said, okay, let's start again. Let's wipe the board clean. Let's do our own research. Let's look at this. And that's why we built econ Impact Economics. And it's really now being adopted all over the world, which we're very proud of. So. Well, thank you, Stuart. Look forward to staying in touch. And again, uh, thank you, callers, for joining us today on the Journey to Impact, a virtual fireside chat series. And we are uh, closing our conversation now with Stuart Williams. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you. Thanks, Gino. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. 
If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.